This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Many of you listening to us out there consume honey, whether that's part of your tea or maybe it's part of a meal. And you may know or have heard about the importance, bees, their importance to the agriculture industry. In fact, they pollinate about $15 billion worth of crops, including many of the almond groves in California. And beekeepers, believe it or not, are on the move with their hives, some traveling across the United States to help farmers in California from the East Coast during their growing seasons. We tell you all, we tell you all of this because of a new book that is out that looks to show the importance of honeybees. Robbie Shell is the author of the book, Bees on the Roof. She's also a former business journalist who worked with us here at Knowledge at Wharton. And with us in the studio, Sam Torres, who's a horticulturalist. That word always gives me trouble. <laughs> we, need to, we need to figure that change out a little bit. Uh, beekeeper, and he's the owner of Keystone Colonies here in the Philadelphia area. Great to see you. It has been too long. Thanks for having us. Sam, great to have you as well. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, so the book, Bees on the Roof, uh, what spurred the idea to, to write this? So it started about five years ago when my brother, who's a backyard beekeeper in Philadelphia, brought me a jar of honey. It was delicious, so I thought, wow, I'm going to do some research into how the honey is made and the little insects that make it. And so I started reading books. I did web searches. I went to bee demos at, at nature centers. Mm -hmm. And the more I got immersed in honeybees, the more I realized that they are amazing insects. And we still know don't know a whole lot about them, but what we do know is they have very sophisticated navigation systems, communication systems, food production systems, uh, probably more efficient than many of the systems that humans have. Um, but I think what really hooked me was when I saw a video of bees marching out of a shoebox-sized package sent through the mail to a beekeeper in Pennsylvania. They were marching single file, <laughs> Out of this package, no pushing, no shoving, no one trying to get ahead of each other in line. They were just intent of get intent on getting out of the box into their new home, setting up the hive, taking care of the queen. And it was almost inspirational to me, the idea that you could have a society where there were no prima donnas, including the queen, who, believe it or not, has a very tough life ahead of her. Uh, and instead, they're all focused on the common good. And I thought, mm. wow. Um, plus, I'm kind of the human equivalent of the female worker bee. Yeah. So I thought, oh, this is great. A matriarchal society where females rule. There's no king. <laughs> there are a few lazy drones whose only job is to mate with the queen. And then they're toast. They die or they're kicked out of the hive. Yeah. Um, and then the next step was I wrote an essay for the Wall Street Journal on how much I love honeybees. And in it, I thought, I said I thought I might write a book. Well, when you say that, everyone says, you know, so where's when? the book? Yeah, what, <laughs> how's it coming? Um, and as, as I continued my research, of course, I came across colony collapse disorder. Right. And we'll probably talk about that, too. But it's, it's just a devastating syndrome that's killing millions and millions of honeybees in the U.S. and around the world. And it's very damaging to agriculture uh, to commercial beekeepers, to, to consumers. As I kind of said at the outset, in some respects, bees are, are kind of the 
you know, the part of the agriculture industry not thought of very often. They're not. They're not thought of. And yet, as you pointed out, they, they add $15 billion worth of value to crops. They're responsible for 70 of our major crops. Everything, Most of the vegetables, fruits, nuts, almonds that we eat are pollinated by honeybees. Huh. And the fact that now, this past year, 42% of the, of the hives collapsed. That's a huge number. It compares to about 31% over the last 10 years. So we have a big problem, and people recognize what it is, but no one is willing to, 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 to launch a concerted effort to help the bees. So, uh, Sam, explain this, this colony collapse disorder. What, what exactly is it and, and the impact? Obviously, that's a negative impact that it's having. So colony collapse disorder is uh, an event which was first realized in 2006 with a major beekeeper named David Hackenberg, who's actually from Pennsylvania. He is a commercial beekeeper. And what happened was he experienced uh, what he thought was a 60 to 80 percent loss of all of his colonies. So Jeez. if he has a thousand colonies, he's basically having almost his whole business wiped out. And what what happens then is that you're you're very limited in what you're able to do because as Robbie just mentioned we're we're experiencing these types we're experiencing these types of losses every single year and what's happening is that it's costing beekeepers more and more money every year to keep their bees but basically what colony collapse disorder is is a combination of things it's a combination of uh, a trend in monoculture cropping uh, unsustainable practices in actual beekeeping uh, diseases and pathogens, which we did not experience 20 years ago, we mm -hmm. are now experiencing them now. The major one being varroa mite. So the varroa, the varroa mite, if you can imagine, ball your fist up, put it up to your body, anywhere on your body, that is the proportion that a varroa mite has to a honeybee's body. And basically mm -hmm. what this parasite is doing is sucking the blood from the honeybee. So... What actually happens is that the varroa mite itself does not kill the honeybee. What the varroa mite does is debilitate the honeybee to the point where the pathogens that it would normally be able to combat healthily, it is no longer able to combat those pathogens. So once it it has the the mite in it, it it's it, it's pretty much over at that point, especially if if it's able to work within the body of the bee for for a decent amount of time. That's correct. So what's happening now is we're shifting. In, uh, in beekeeping, we're shifting towards learning to live with the varroa mite. As you've said, we've realized that this is not going anywhere, so we have to learn to live and cope with it. So one of the ways that we've started to cope with it is starting to use organic chemicals like thymol, which is derived from thyme. So, I, and then, I don't know if you saw the story of it about the... the the uh, the spraying down yeah, in South Carolina yeah. Yeah. as they're trying to spray for the Zika virus, you had you know thousands of bees that were just wiped out because well, of the spraying going on down there. You actually had one woman lost two million bees, uh, and that gets to another one of the causes of colony collapse disorder, which is insecticides. Right. So they have a a group of of these chemicals um, or, or pesticides. And I'll pronounce it, I hope correctly, neonicotinoids. Uh, and they are sprayed on the plants. They're sprayed on the seeds of plants. Um, and it's thought that they circulate in the plant tissues, and then the bees pick it up as they're pollinating the flowers. That What happens 
some scientists believe, is that affects the bee's nervous system and it makes them unable to find their way home. They hmm. can't find their way home. They can't support the hive and the hive collapses. So right. that's a direct impact, a direct uh, cause of colony collapse disorder. Now, you know, to be fair to both sides, the big chemical manufacturers like Bayer and Monsanto and Syngenta, they claim that their products are not the problem. And in fact, their products save a lot of the crops uh, that, that we need um, for our ecological system. Um, and that it's really, as Sam said, it's really things like the varroa mites and the small hive beetles and a lot of uh, viruses that get into the hives. And also, um, some beekeepers spray their hives with sun pesticides. A story in the New York Times said a typical hive has residue of 120 different pesticides in the oh, hive. Geez. So what, what it ends up being is what what people call a toxic soup. There's no one particular pesticide. Right. It's a combination of all these, plus the, the mites, plus the fact that a lot of the land is, is now being planted in single crops. Um, with rising crop prices, farmers are taking what used to be fields of wildflowers and they're planting it. So the bees aren't getting that diverse nutrition anymore. So huh. they're just the bees essentially are being assaulted on all sides. And my book was aimed at middle grade people, middle grade right, exactly. students, because the publisher of the book, Tumble Home Learning, has a philosophy that if you don't reach kids in the, by the seventh grade and teach them science, technology, and the STEM disciplines, yeah. then you've lost them. So this book was an environmental science, an environmental fiction book that focused, the fiction is the story I, I wove around four seventh graders, but sure. the environment, environment part is the factual part about bees and colony collapse disorder and what a disaster we're headed for. And, and the way you write the book, it, it's almost, you're laying out the, the experiences over the course of what, an eight, nine month period. Right, so I had I had to do a little fast, fast talking here because uh, normally, science the, the the four kids set up beehive bee, uh, beehives on the roof of a Manhattan hotel right. as a way to win their science competition. Usually, these competitions end end in May, right. but of course, the the bee season is through the summer. So I had to have the competition go through the summer, <laughs> and the kids kept tending the bees, and they you know there's a winner picked in in early September. Um, but I did. I did want to show that that kids are perfectly capable and are encouraged to get involved in beekeeping. Yeah. There are a lot of stories. Bees are all over the press these days. There's sure. the EpiPen, EpiPen there's yep. the Brexit, um, the Brexit move, which threw a lot of the uh, the regulations about bees up and up and into disarray because now, you know, does does Britain have to have to negotiate twenty eight separate treaties or you know, I mean there's just a lot a lot of coverage, a lot of stories about kids starting their own companies revolving around honey. Um, I, I, think, I feel like I'm reading it everywhere. Well, and the, the other part about it is is the business as a whole, Sam. It, you know, as Robbie mentioned, I mean, there's so much more use of, of honey in a variety of different areas, meals, you know, you name it. How stable of an industry is it right now? Well, right now, one of the things we're also experiencing is a large amount of importation of honey. Okay. So what's happening is colony collapse disorder is causing beekeepers in the United States to not be able to actually meet the demand that the consumers here want for honey. Right. In this country, we consume a lot of honey, and 80% of that just last year came from imports. Overseas. Yes. A lot of that came from India and Vietnam, and these countries are countries that don't are not scrutinized like we are when it comes to health. 
Right. So, for example, if a honey is coming from India that says it's organic, it is organic by India's standards. It right, is by right. no mean organic under the USDA. 844 Wharton is the number if you'd like to jump in the conversation. Our guest, Robbie Shell, who's the author of the book Bees on the Roof, and also Sam Torres, uh, Torres, who is the owner of Keystone Colonies. Uh, in terms of the amount of, of, of honey that you're able to produce over an annual basis, how much are you putting out right now, and, and how much are you hurt by what's going on with, uh, with the, the colony collapse disorder? Well, in, in my colonies, what I've seen is the same, pretty much the same amount of losses, which is around 40%. So my first year keeping bees, I purchased three colonies. That winter, I had two of them die. So the next year, hmm. I purchased two more colonies and split the existing colony that I had. And the cost of a colony ends up being how much? Just the bees itself can be anywhere from 150 to $200. Right. That is not including any of the woodenware, any of the equipment required to maintain the bees in good health. Right. Now, as I mentioned at the top, it's we've gotten to the point where uh, you have farmers from the East Coast going to the West Coast during the, the, the peak times of the growing seasons for a lot of these products out there. Has that been a shift that's really happened over the last couple of decades, or has that been the norm for the most part? We've we've started to see a huge shift in migratory beekeeping because that is honestly what makes the most amount of money in the beekeeping industry. Right. So honey sale is second to pollination services. Really? Yes. In wow. this country, pollination services make the most amount of money when it comes to the beekeeping industry. So a, a, a beekeeper goes from the East Coast to the West Coast bringing how many colonies probably on average and, and, and anywhere how much? from a thousand to three thousand colonies packed on pallets on a flatbed going across the country yes and, uh, and, and each colony they're they're getting how much from the farmer uh, you know 200 250 dollars they're, they're, they're getting about 150 dollars per colony so it's almost the point where these beekeepers have to do this to be able to survive at this point. That's correct. It's if if someone is looking into the beekeeping industry and looking to be a commercial beekeeper, he is not looking to be a honey producer. He is looking to be a migratory beekeeper offering pollination services to the various amounts of farms that we that we have in this country. And it ranges all the way from up in the northeast in Maine all the way to California, all the way down to Florida. So the, uh, I mentioned farmers going from the East Coast to California, but I guess they are going where down to Florida as well and to the mid to the Midwest and, yep. uh, and other places where where there's growing going on. That's correct. I mean, that's that, that that's a crazy change. And, and obviously part of this is is something that can be controlled because of some of the factors you just laid out that, you know, with with certain changes, you know, you could you could be looking at a much different industry in the future. Well, you could be. And in, in fact, just to, to boost what Sam said, I was out at a, a Lancaster County commercial beekeeper's um, farm uh, the other day, and he said he used to only he used to be in this business for honey, and it's a messy, ugly, sloppy business, and he yeah. didn't make enough money. So now he is, in fact, uh, carting a lot of his. He has, I think, 2,000 2, hives, carting, carting those hives around the country. Um, but I don't. this is not going to change. I mean... You know, the bees are, they're either at a stable point now or they're continuing to be killed off in higher rates, which means that farmers everywhere are going to need to keep importing these bees to pollinate their crops. And, and a lot of times we're talking about a bee, whether it's a honey bee or you know, whatever type of bee it is, most people, I think for the, for the most part, 
end up being scared of bees. Well, they, they, yeah. you know, they want to get away from bees. They want to swat at them. Well, that's a good point, and it's one that I initially went into this thinking, wow, I don't want to get near a honeybee. I don't want to get stung. Actually, honeybees will not sting you unless you step on them or get in their flight path or uh -huh. in any way disrupt their business. If you've been stung, it's most likely been by a yellow jacket. Right. So yellow jackets and hornets are very much more aggressive. Um, they, they, uh, you know, they, it takes not that much provocation to to get them riled up around you. Of course, the worst are the African killer bees, uh, which were brought over to Brazil in the 1950s as a way to mate um, with the tamer European bees. Unfortunately, these African honeybees escaped quarantine and eventually came up to the U.S. Right, right. So now we're faced with very aggressive uh, African bees. Um, they do make a lot of honey, but man, if you if if you get in their way at all, they will chase you for a quarter of a mile. Forty thousand of them will go after you. They can kill you if they. I mean, I don't, I'm not intending to scare people because they're not, there really aren't any around right. here. Yeah. But it's just something to be aware of that when you people say they're afraid of bees, it's it's not honeybees that are the problem. You mentioned uh, the the issues surrounding the EpiPen, but you also mentioned about Brexit, which is probably a story that people are, are saying, wait a minute, how are honeybees connected to Brexit? Which is an interesting story because I, I saw a couple of the articles about mm -hmm. it, and this has you know the potential to be the same type of economic impact over there as a lot of the farmers and beekeepers are seeing over here in the United States. That's right, and it also involves the whole question of pesticides. So right now, Britain has a temporary ban on pesticides, uh, and the question is, uh, will they keep it? You know, will they will they have to negotiate these bans with the individual with the individual countries now because there's no central umbrella organization? Right. Um, so you know, it's it's one of the side issues of Brexit, but it shows how kind of universal the problem of regulating and protecting honeybees is. What needs to be done then to to look out for them a little bit more? I mean, people will probably say, why are we why are we worried about looking out for bees? But then you go back to $15 billion worth yeah. of value in terms of crops. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good question, and I think it's one that a lot of people raise. And I, as um, one of the articles I read said that honeybees are kind of the canary in the coal mine. They're the first sign that we are mistreating our environment in a very serious way. So um, in the case of the South Carolina bees, it was a, it was a mistake. I mean, the, the woman with the Two million, two million bees was not notified properly that they were going to be spraying, so yeah. she wasn't able to take protective measures. It could just be that the, the, the agri-farmers who, who spray the crops need to do a better job of doing it at times when the honeybees are not as affected, like maybe at night, because right. honeybees don't go out at night. Um, there has to be more attempts to control the varroa mites, um, the, the small hive beetles. I mean, it's probably a good question for Sam, Sam too. Yeah. So what I think needs to happen, so for the everyday person, the way that they can help with the whole honeybee epidemic, what I would say is go out front of your house or out back of your house and that little strip of lawn, whatever little piece of dirt that you have, go on the internet, find out what pollinator-friendly plants are native to southeastern Pennsylvania or your area and throw a couple seeds in the ground and I promise you, it will look 10 times better than the lawn that you have outside. 
For the every, especially if it's a ninety-five degree summer every day. Exactly. For and and you might end up seeing some things you've never seen before, like some monarch butterflies and some honeybees and your other native pollinators. And you'll save yourself a little money on the watering costs of yes. watering a lot of these as well. And mowing. Yeah, exactly. Mowing, which is pretty much the bane of everyone's existence, and it's and it's something that's done so regularly. Robbie mentioned uh, uh, that this is more. I mentioned at the top that this, you know almonds obviously are are, are a big benefactor uh, in California, uh, but she also mentioned fruits and uh, are also a big benefactor as well. Correct? Yes, oh. blueberries, cranberries, uh, peaches, apples. There's a wide, wide variety, and the one the ones I just mentioned that's just in the Northeast. But I, I mentioned it when I was talking to some kids about this. I said, you know, the watermelon seed spittings contest you have in the summer, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to have those anymore. And the pumpkins you carve at Halloween, you're not going to have those anymore because huh. po- bees pollinate those too. Bees, you know, the, there's beeswax candles. There's um, a lot of people use honey for uh, therapeutic reasons. I mean, there's a huge amount of claims made about what honey can do for you, and some of them are pretty exaggerated. But they are seen to help in wound care, for example. They are seen to be antibacterial. Um, There's a a honey in New Zealand called Manuka that was recently written about in the Wall Street Journal. Huge fight going on because the the New Zealand Manuka honey honey growers or honey uh, producers are trying to trademark their honey because it is so um, valuable. I mean, it's like, I think they can sell it for 10 times more than any other kind of honey. And Australia is a little angry because they also produce Manuka honey and they don't yeah. want the word trademark. So there's, there's um, but Manuka honey is especially, um, apparently especially ther- useful in, in, thera- in therapies. So. But is, is the U.S. really the, at, at the heart of where this problem really exists? I mean, you mentioned, you know, what, what's going on uh, in, in Europe because of the Brexit. But, I mean, are other, other areas of the globe facing these types of problems as well? Absolutely. There was a, a global assessment of threats to pollinators was the name of it. And it said that plants that depend on pollination make up 35 percent of global crop production. Hmm. That's as much as $577 billion a year. Plus, plus the agriculture system employs millions of people. So it's yeah. a global, it's definitely a global issue. The so, biggest honey producers are China. I think the biggest one is China. As Sam mentioned India that India and Vietnam are also very big honey producers. And also, to put it into perspective, Vietnam is one of the largest honey producers at 45,000 tons a year, and we are their biggest customer at wow. 40,000 tons a year. So out of those 45,000 tons— We're taking 90% of it. Yes. It's also, Russia is a big producer, Ukraine. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues with, you know, with the quality of imports. 844-WHARTON is the number if you'd like to jump in and join the conversation. Robbie Shell is the author of the book Bees on the Roof. Sam Torres, uh, owner of Keystone Colonies here in the Philadelphia area, 844-942-7866. Getting back to the book for a second, because I mean, I found it interesting that when you're talking about an issue like this, as you kind of alluded to before, this will be this is a book that will benefit a lot of people. And again, you're gearing it more towards kids so they have an understanding of what this is all about and the potential problems so that we don't have these issues exactly. 10, 15, 20 years right. down the road. That's right. And I actually started out thinking I would write an adult nonfiction book about bees. And then, of right. course, you realize there are you know, probably 5,000 <laughs> books on that out there. And I, right. I'm not a biologist or an entomologist or anything. So I eventually came around to a book that would be attractive to young kids, to young people. And that was a fiction book. Um, 
And the idea of writing fiction was very appealing because as a, as a business journalist, I've always had to check facts and yeah. check quotes. And here I could make things up. You know, I could make up the story, although I did do a lot of fact checking about the bees. Um, but I think if you can reach kids at this age and teach them that they can have an impact on the environment, yeah. you know, that it's not just an adult thing, um, you know, they can actually do, they can, they can have, they can start you know, a beekeeping enterprise. There's a story recently about an 11-year-old girl in Austin, Texas, who started up a, a little business called uh, Me and the Bees Honey. She now has a distribution agreement with Whole Foods. Jeez. Um, I mean, at 11 years at of 11 age. At 11 years old. Um, <laughs> so kids are, you know, it's bringing out the entrepreneurial instinct in kids. Yeah. Um, just learning about bees and beekeeping, it emphasizes all those things I talked about in the beginning, teamwork, efficiency, no need for prima donnas. I mean, you look at our sports industry and our oh, entertainment yeah, well, industry yeah. and, you know, financial services, and you you just really come to appreciate, you know, the simplicity and the efficiency of the bees and also the mystery. I mean, there is still a lot we don't know about bees. There are stories in the science sections of newspapers very frequently talking about new things they're learning about genetics and about, you know, the, the waggle dance that bees do to let other bees know where they're, where they're nectar is yeah there's just it's an endless source of of research and again same it goes back to something we mentioned before is the fact that bees you know they really are the basis of a lot of production in a variety of different realms out there and it's it's just again having people understand how important they actually really are in this process yeah, they're kind of the the unsung heroes in this whole thing. You know, we we go to the supermarket every day and we we get our our fruits and our vegetables and we make our meals every night and we kind of take for granted where all that food comes from. Not only the farmers that are digging into the soil, putting the crops into the ground and making sure that everything grows, but the actual bees that make sure that your watermelon looks like a watermelon yeah. instead of looking like a peach. You know what I mean? Cuz yeah. the crops get bigger and more abundant once the bees are on them and it's sure. And it's 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 no surprise that pollination is such a huge industry because without it, they wouldn't have the same amount of crops or the same size of crops. So then when they present those to the markets, they're not going to want to buy it. And then what we're going to have is more importation of the stuff that looks good. As much as my kids like to eat watermelon, I, I know it's I know it's an it's an important issue. Uh, great to have you here. Great seeing you again. Great. Thank you. Thanks nice very to be much. Here. Yeah. Great to see you, Sam. Nice meeting you. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you in. very much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, the book, by the way, uh, "Bees on the Roof" by Robbie Shell. It is out in bookstores and available online. It's available at uh, both the publisher Tumble Home Learning and on Amazon, uh, and will be in bookstores soon. Just came out. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.